If you turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 11, we're in the third week of a series entitled Waiting. Waiting. Nobody likes to wait. We don't like to wait. We, we want things to happen quickly. We want things to happen now. And I've given examples over the last couple of weeks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip going over all of the examples this morning for the sake of time. But, but we get it. We don't like waiting. We don't like the DMV. We don't like Costco, etc. if the lines are really long. And I've been mentioning the fact that the, the struggle with waiting isn't the waiting. There's something deeper at play. It's this. We, when we're waiting, we're not in control. We're not in control. And would you agree with this, me this morning? We, oh, you don't have to, but, but for those of you who do agree, that... that we are control freaks. We like to be in control. I don't like to be out of control. I, I want to make sure that the things in my life are under my control, that I can direct them. And it's when I start losing control that, that I get a little freaked out. And waiting is one of those places where if I'm waiting, it means that there's something that's beyond my control that I can no longer direct. It means that, that, that I'm not strong enough. Maybe I'm not wise enough or not rich enough. I don't have enough money or I'm not disciplined enough. And, and, and we fill in the gaps where we make excuses or we lay blame. But the reality is we don't like waiting. The problem with that is that the word of God is full of examples of waiting. And he talks a lot, a lot about waiting. I'd encourage you, um, don't take my word for it. Go, go do a little search. There's some online resources. Go just put in the word wait in the Bible and, and see what comes up. There's a lot of waiting that happens in the Bible. And, and here's the thing. God's okay with it. God's okay with waiting. He's okay with us waiting. And as I mentioned earlier, there's even times where God waits, where God waits on us. We've been looking at John chapter 11 uh, in the account of Jesus when he hears that Lazarus, his friend, is sick. There's people that come with a message from Mary and Martha and Jesus is in another place and they, they let him know urgently, hey, Jesus, Lazarus, the one that you love, is sick. Sick enough to warrant having someone come and tell him and the implication is this, Jesus, you need to come and, and you need to minister to Lazarus because you know, we know, and Mary and Martha knew, that Jesus could do something about this. And so we've covered the first 32 chapters of John chapter 11, and we're not going to go o- over all of them. Just a kind of quick synopsis, Jesus is away. They come and say, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. And then the very next verse says that Jesus stayed where he was two more days. He didn't respond to the urgency, to, to this critical illness. He waited then when he gets ready to go, he says, okay, let's go, let's go up to Judea. And, and, and then his disciples go, wait, listen, you can't go there because the last time you went there, it didn't go well. They, they, they try to kill you. And, and so here we have one group of people telling Jesus he needs to do something and another group of people telling him he shouldn't do something. And I'm so glad Jesus doesn't really listen to what our ideas are because he sees the big picture. And so he goes up to Jerusalem and he tells the disciples we need to go because Lazarus is, has fallen asleep and they think, hey, he's sleeping. It's a good thing. He'll get better. I've slept a lot this week. My wife told me on Friday, I was like getting ready to get up and she's like, you're not getting out of bed. 
And so I spent two days in bed or on the couch or between the two, but I didn't go out of the house, which is so frustrating because I got things to do. And, and the, it was beautiful weather, right? By the way, you all look great. It looks like you all got an extra hour of sleep last night. <laughs> if he sleeps, he's going to get better. And Jesus says, no, I'm not talking about that kind of sleep. No, Lazarus died. He's dead. And he goes, but for your sake, I'm glad he died because you're going to get to see the glory of God revealed. Lazarus is going to live again. He shows up. We talked last week about how when he gets there, Mary and Martha both come to him and make that expression, Lord, if you'd been here, our brother would not have died. Martha makes the declaration right on the heels of that, that even so, I still know that whatever you ask of the Father, he will do. Jesus says to her very plainly, Lazarus will live. He's going to rise again. And And Martha says, well, no, I know at the last day at the resurrection that he will live. And and she you know, sometimes we try to comfort ourselves and God, God makes us a promise and then we kind of water down the promise to make it a little more palatable. God says, I will provide and, and we go, well, God will do, you know, make a couple of adjustments. God, I'm gonna give you something and we're like, well, I have to earn it a little bit. So anyway, I can't re-preach that. I'm gonna keep moving forward. We come now to this part of the scripture where we see a dimension of Jesus' humanity that is amazing. It's awe-inspiring. Starting in verse 32 of chapter 11, the words will be up on the screen if you want to follow along. It says this, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was she saw and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's broken. She's broken. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eye Eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb, and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. I don't so much have points this morning. I'll, I'll make a couple of points, but my request would be as I share some, some things that, that stand out in this passage, that you would draw your own conclusions, your own points, and your po- own points of application, because there's, there's a few of them, and I think that given where you are in your life and your walk with the Lord, that he will speak to you through his grace and through his mercy right to what your point of need is. First thing that I want to highlight is this, is that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled. He was deeply moved and troubled, so much so that it says it twice. First when he's there with Mary, and then when they get to the place where the grave was. He was deeply moved, and he was troubled. What does this mean? What's going on inside of Jesus? It says that he was deeply moved. The Greek word here literally means that, to, that if we translate it from the Greek to the English directly, the, the translation would be to snort like a horse. To snort like a horse. I bet you've never read a translation that says that. 
that Jesus was troubled. He was deeply moved. He was bothered inside of himself. I grew up in South Africa where, um, and I learned Afrikaans when, when I grew up. And there's this word that we have in Afrikaans. You want to le- learn Afrikaans this morning? It's the word omgekrap. Omgekrap. Um, om, and, and I love it. It's one, of my, it's one of the words I still, when I think about how I'm feeling, omgekrap, it, it's... it's it's like you're itching all over your entire body. Like your whole omgekrap means you're agitated, but it's like your entire being. Jesus was omgekrap. <laughs> he was agitated. He was irritated that, that what was going on here didn't settle inside of him. He was bothered. And it wasn't like, like we can read that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled. And, and, and scholars have debated what the true meaning is here, and maybe he was irritated with the people because of their lack of faith, but there's nothing that actually supports that prior to this. In fact, Jesus commends Martha, talks about what she does believe. So that doesn't line up. It doesn't, it doesn't gel given the context here. No, Jesus is bothered by something. Something about this whole circumstance has him agitated, it has his insides, you know what I'm talking about? Come on, I just can't even express it in words. I'm going like this because you're just like, oh, I'm frustrated and I'm upset. My insides are just, Ugh. why was Jesus bothered? I want you to listen to this carefully. There's a reason for this. Jesus is bothered by the things that stand between us and the life that he has for us. Jesus is deeply bothered by the things that stand between you and the life that he has for you. In the case of Lazarus, Lazarus, it was death. That Lazarus had passed from this life and had been in in a tomb for four days. Jesus is bothered to a deep, deep place in a deep, deep way by the things that stand between us and the life he has for us. Here he's standing face to face with death, the death of a friend, the death of someone close to him, and he's watching his friends, Mary and Martha, and the whole crowd as they weep and as they wail and as they cry and as they're in mourning. He's faced with the fact that death robs, that death separates, that death destroys, that death is not a part of his kingdom or a part of his plan. If you go all the way back to the garden, death was not a part of his original design and he's standing face to face with the thing that has been introduced because of sin and brokenness and he's done with it. That's it. I can't stand this anymore. Now remember, from this place, Jesus is in Jericho, and he's getting, I mean, in Bethany, and he's getting ready to start making his way to Jerusalem. And in in the next chapters, we start seeing the passion of Christ as he starts moving to the cross. See, there's this awareness for Jesus that it wouldn't be long before he himself would be be behind a, a stone in a cave, lying dead, See, this whole encounter with Lazarus wasn't just about Lazarus. What did Jesus say? This is so that God would get the glory. And it's this reminder, this face-to-face reminder for Jesus about what he's about to accomplish. 
that someone dear to him, close to him, personal, in someone that he, he knew intimately is lying dead and he's done with death. He says, this is no more. He is agitated. He's, he's upset. Not at Mary and Martha. He's upset at the enemy. He's upset. He himself would be subject to the sting of death and he wasn't excited about it, but he knew what needed to be done to secure our freedom. He's getting ready to set things right. Can I tell you, there's, there are things in your life, there are obstacles in your life to you walking in the fullness of what God has for you. And some of those obstacles are there because you put them there. And some of those obstacles and some of those walls are not there by your choice, but they're there nonetheless. Those things bother Jesus. Everything that prevents you from walking in the fullness of the life that he has for you bothers him, which is why he stands before the Father making intercession on our behalf. By the way, this is not a New Testament concept. We see this in the character of Jesus and through, of the Father throughout Scripture. In Isaiah 25, 7 through 8, Isaiah recounting the faithfulness of God, says this, on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. Speaking prophetically, the sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. The Lord has spoken. Do you see the connect from Isaiah? Back to the children of Israel. Isaiah is standing probably in the proximity of where Jesus would be crucified. In the proximity of the place where the curtain would be ripped in two. And he's looking backwards saying, God looked at the children of Israel and he starts leading them towards life. But it was at the fulfillment of Jesus' death and resurrection that that shroud that, that, that covered all the peoples was removed. And I love that he wipes away the tears from all of their faces. God feels deeply about the things that prevent you from knowing him fully. And right on the heels of this, the second thing that stands out the shortest passage in all of Scripture, the shortest verse, two words, Jesus wept. Maybe the shortest, but definitely one of the most powerful. We see the humanity of Jesus revealed in this moment. We're under the agony and the strain of what he is feeling and what's going on inside of him and seeing the mourners and seeing the sisters and seeing the grave. Jesus wept. See, to the ancient Greeks and Romans, the primary characteristic of their God or gods was apatheia. We get the word apathy. The gods were apathetic. They didn't give a rip. 
the gods that were in place, firmly in place for the Greeks and the Romans who, who were the prevailing way of thought in that world, that their ways, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews were introducing this idea that God was aloof, that he was distant, that he didn't care. To them, God was isolated, he was passionless, and he was compassionless. The gods could not be bothered by the lives and daily issues of mortals. You were dust to them. The the gods thought you were just dust. You were nothing. You were there for their service and for their pleasure, but they did not care. And here in the midst, inserted into the midst of this prevailing way of thought, we see Jesus weeping. Weeping. See, there's a lot of weeping happening in this passage because there's death. But again, we go back to the Greek and understand this, that the word translated weep for Jesus is not the same weeping that we see translated from Mary, Martha, and the crowd. See, they were weeping loudly. They were wailing. You ever, you ever seen like a funeral like a, 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 on, on TV or maybe you've been to a funeral where someone's wailing loudly and there's just a loud cry and there's just this agony coming out and there's this release. That's not what Jesus did. The word that's translated weep for him is a literal meaning, he shed tears. That, that Jesus wept. When it says that Jesus wept, he cried. There was this moment in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of the awareness of the death that separated God from the people from God, in, the, in this moment where he's seeing his friends hurt, in this moment where he's aware of where he's headed in his own life and, and what's about to take place, Jesus cries. And the implication in the word that's used here is not that he shed a tear, that Jesus wept. That Jesus wept. In fact, John uses this word in the Gospel of John. In, in the implication, this is why the, the, the original language is so important. The, the word that he chooses to use for the, the word weep here means that he, in fact, was trying to hold back what was really inside of him. To think that eternity, well, from the, the moment of the fall, all of the brokenness and all of the sin and all of the death that had preceded welled up inside of Jesus in this moment as he watches his friends hurting because of the enemy. Jesus couldn't let out what was really going on inside of him. There is a depth to these two words. Jesus reveals his humanity and his compassion. He feels for his friends. He feels for us. He feels for you. You see, Jesus has compassion in the waiting. Because here's the overarching thing, and here's what I see a lot of people do with this passage, is they kind of go back to the fact, and, and, and this is one of the reasons we misinterpret this. Jesus had already said that he was going to raise Lazarus. He knows what he's about to do. Why would he weep when he knows what he's about to do? 
Let's get real for a second. If, if it were me, I'd be like, you, ju- you all just need to shut up and stop crying because I'm Jesus. Come on. Because even the crowd says, you know, some of them were like, look how much he loved him. And others say, man, couldn't this guy who opened the eyes of the blind, if only he had been here, he could have done something but he wasn't. So I guess he really doesn't care that much. How often do we hear in the world around us, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of pain, people say things, well, how could a loving God? The heart of God breaks and he weeps over the brokenness of this world. Even though he knows that there is a plan in place, even though he knows there's restoration to be had, when we hurt, God hurts. When we have pain, God has pain, and he has compassion in the midst of the waiting. You see, we serve a personal, intimate, feeling, compassionate God. This is the God that we serve. It's the God that we love. It's the God that I hope that you know. Some would say that compassion is kind of a a weakness. You have to keep a stiff upper lip. Don't cry. Right, the, the lie perpetrated on the men of our culture is say, boys and men don't cry. Jesus wept. God incarnate, God as a man, he cried and he cried crocodile tears, big tears, drops dripping from his eyes and he didn't even let it all out. He was under control. This is at the very core of who our God is. This is at the very core of what we believe. See, if we did not serve a compassionate God, there would be no cross. There would be no empty grave. There would be no manger. There would be no Bible. There would be no nothing. Because if God was distant and uncaring, Jesus would not have come. It's at the very core of who God is. Isaiah, again, in Isaiah 63, verse 9, says this. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lift them, uh, lifted them up and carried them all of the days of old. Again, I go backwards to the Old Testament, why? Because the nature and the character of God is repeated throughout scripture. We see when we sing, you are faithful, God, you are faithful, it extends all the way from the beginning of this book to the end of this book and even beyond that. He is faithful, he is faithful, he is faithful. In their distress, he was distressed. You know, when the children of Israel experienced distress, that God didn't stand back and go, oh, Knuckleheads. He felt what they were feeling deeply, intimately. See, God is distressed by what distresses us and we have to know this, we have to own this, we have to remember this because this is the lie of the enemy. God doesn't care, God doesn't know, God's far away. Where is he? If God really loved you, he would be here. Those two words, Jesus wept, should serve to underpin and anchor our faith. Jesus wept. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest 
who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Listen to this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In our time of need. And, and the implication here is that time of need is usually accompanied with a time of waiting. If I have a need, it means I'm waiting. I have a financial need. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the check to come. I'm waiting for the job to arrive. I'm waiting for the raise. I have a physical need. I'm waiting for the diagnosis. I'm waiting for the, the medication to work. I'm waiting for the healing. I'm waiting. And, and, and God says, come boldly. So there's two invitations that we see here in this passage. Come boldly before the throne of grace. It's a personal invitation from the God of the universe to you this morning. See, we all deal with the frustration of putting our trust in other people or other things and being let down. I don't need to ask you to raise your hand this morning and ask if you've been let down. I know you have. Maybe even today. That we've been let down in our lives, sometimes in little ways, right? I was promised the ice cream cone and I didn't get the ice cream cone. I tell you what though, for a four-year-old, that's huge. And sometimes in big ways, broken trust, unkind words, rejection. We've been let down or people have hidden agendas or other people are just broken as well and try to hide it. We all do that. We all try to hide our brokenness. We want to present ourselves as being better than what we really are. But it doesn't last. See, God's not like that. God's not like that. He doesn't hide. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's made himself known. He's made himself plain that he's close to the brokenhearted that he draws near to those who are hurting, that Jesus weeps when those who he is close to are weeping. And here's the, the reality of it is we actually honor God when we wait patiently. We bring honor to God when we wait patiently for him. That in the waiting, we can glorify his name because what we're saying is, God, I'm not in control, but I know that you are. See, what's the, what's the antidote? What's the answer to, to waiting impatiently? To surrender, surrender and humble ourselves before the Lord and say, God, I don't know, but you do. So we honor God when we wait. And in the midst of us honoring him, he comforts us. Andrew Murray, who's a missionary, wrote these words. I have them up on the screen. You can follow along. It says, it is resting in the Lord, in his will, his promise, his faithfulness, and his love that makes patience easy. And the resting in him is nothing but being silent unto him, still before him, having our thoughts and wishes and our fears and hopes hushed into calm and quiet, 
and that great peace of God which passeth all understanding. That peace keeps the heart and mind when we are anxious for anything because we have made our request known to him. The rest, the silence, the stillness, and the patient waiting all find their strength and joy in God himself. It's Mary and Martha coming to Jesus saying, God, Jesus, if you had been here, but we choose still to trust you. God's okay with our brokenness. You know that your brokenness doesn't freak God out. There's no point where you're out of control, or feeling out of control, where he goes, oh, I, don't, I can't handle that. I'm out of here. When we come to him in our brokenness and we're real and transparent, we cry out to him and we come boldly. I think sometimes that passage in Hebrews, we think, well, I'm going to come boldly. And it's not like that. It's the confidence of a child coming into the room and walking to their mama or papa. You imagine an executive in a boardroom and their child would walk in and everything stops. You all have to wait because my child is here. It's that confidence. And God says, I will pick you up. I will hold you. I will be your strength in this moment. He invites us to come, but then he also does another thing. He invites us to extend that same compassion just as Jesus did. That it's not just for us, but because we're being conformed to the likeness of Jesus, that our goal is to live our lives the way he did, that we would sit with those who are mourning, those who are broken, those who are hurting, and that we would be deeply troubled and distressed. And that we would weep with those who weep. Jesus becomes the very model of compassion for us. See, remember, Jesus knows what he's about to do, but he doesn't stop in this moment and go, listen, I got this under control. You all are lacking some faith. If you would just, if you would just recognize who I am and that I've got this figured out, he doesn't do that. Now, there's other times in scripture where he calls the disciples out because he's, he's forming something in them, Right? He's, there's some leadership development happening and he calls out their faith. In this moment, in the midst of this brokenness, so we see the tenderness of Jesus. He doesn't stop and say, listen, I already told you. I'm gonna raise him from the dead. Why are you still crying? No, he, he genuinely, from the depths of who he is, weeps with them. And the invitation to us is this. Could we sit with people and weep and mourn and cry and have compassion and not try and give them the answer. If you would just. I think it's safe to say in my life, I hate those words. If you would just. If you would just do this, if you would just do that, if you would make these changes, if you would make those adjustments, if you would just suck it up a little bit more, if you would be more disciplined... Do you think I would be in this situation if I had that ability? So what you're saying is not really helping me out at all. See, we've lost the ability to just sit with people in their brokenness and not feel like we have to be Jesus and fix it because Jesus didn't feel like he had to fix it. 
Romans 12, verse 13, Paul says this, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Listen to this. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, listen to this, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Here's the simple, profound, challenging, life-altering invitation of Jesus. Can we just simply stop talking and just be with people? Can we approach people in such a way that we don't kind of evaluate who they are, where they come from, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, where they should be doing better, or how they could have done things better in the past, evaluating the steps that they've taken to get themselves into this own mess, and then trying to figure it out for them, or at the very least, just judging them silently in our own hearts. The invitation of Jesus is this, it says, None of you are better in his eyes than anyone else. That our righteousness, the very best that we have to bring, is as filthy rags. And Jesus says, you with your filthy rag righteousness, I love you as much as the other person. And the invitation is this, in the midst of brokenness, can we come alongside of each other and from a deep place, not manufactured, a deep place say, God, I feel with those who are feeling, I mourn with those who are mourning, I rejoice with those who are rejoicing. I can celebrate your rays at work without being jealous that I didn't get one. And I can sit and cry with you in the midst of your brokenness and not feel like I have to have the answer, not feel like I have to tell you what's up or what verses you should read. And if someone asks you what verses should I read, tell them but don't volunteer that information until they've stopped crying. You know what I mean. This is the invitation of our Lord. Jesus wept. He felt deeply. He feels for us, but then he invites us into a partnership with him where he says, now I'm inviting you to feel deeply. I'm inviting you to feel the same way, to, ha- to be, have the same level of conviction The same level of being bothered by the things. Are you bothered by the things that prevent people from walking in the fullness of a relationship with Jesus? Or are you so focused on your own life? Jesus had this perspective. And can I tell you right now, here's the point of application and we'll close. Ask him. Read this story again. Next week's going to be great. We're going to see someone come to life. It's going to be amazing. But this week, would you read this passage and would you simply ask Jesus, I want your heart. I, I want whatever was going on inside of you. God, I want that. And he's faithful. He'll give it to you.
Let's stand together as we close. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you. Thank you this morning for your faithfulness. Lord, there's been this theme this morning of your closeness, of your intimacy, of your faithfulness, your loving kindness. And Lord, I believe this morning that you are doing a deep work in some souls today. So Lord, we ask that you would do what you need to do. God, I thank you first and foremost that you love us, that you feel deeply about the things that affect our lives. And that in the midst of the waiting, you sit with us, you weep with us, you mourn with us, you wrap your arms around us and whisper, I've got you, I've got you. God, we know there's a miracle coming. For Mary and Martha was seeing their brother come back to life. God, I declare in this place there's a miracle coming. There's a raise that's coming. There's healing that's coming. There's transformation that's coming. There's children who are are distant from their parents who will be reconciled that is coming. It's coming. It's on its way. Jesus has already done the work. It's on its way. But in this moment, Jesus wraps his arm around you and he says, I've got you. So God, help us to honor you in the waiting and receive the comfort. And then, Lord, I pray as your children, as your servants, as brothers and sisters, that we would do likewise, that we would extend compassion and mercy and grace, Lord, to every person, every person that you would put in front of us. Jesus, give us your heart this morning, I pray. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.